Well, let me introduce our next speaker. Um, and uh, Dr. Augenbraun um, is the Director of Infectious Diseases at SUNY Downstate Medical Center. He's trained in infectious diseases and has been um, a really uh, well-renowned expert on syphilis for a very long time. He's going to talk to us today um, in more detail about some of the clinical aspects, therapeutic challenges, and diagnostic challenges of syphilis that I know everyone is encountering uh, as we speak. So Dr. Augenbraun, appreciate you being here. Come on. Good morning, everybody. I want to thank the conference organizers for inviting me here. Um, see if I can master the audiovisual. Okay, here's my one disclosure, and I hope you learned something this morning. Uh, this is the pathologic agent that causes syphilis. Most people understand and know this. It's the pale treponeme, treponema pallidum, subspecies pallidum. It's a venereal disease, as you know. Now, there are other treponemes that cause non-venereal diseases that are very similar to syphilis, and you see them listed here. Um, they're genomically very similar to treponema pallidum, uh, subspecies pallidum, and they certainly serologically can't be distinguished from one another. So the serologic tests we do for syphilis cross-react with all these other tests, but they cause uniquely non-venereal diseases. Although I'm privy to some information recently, I think there's a study from Japan that suggests that given more sophisticated genomic techniques that they're identifying venereal disease caused by other forms of treponemes. So we have to see what we learn over the next few years. On the right-hand side of the slide is a dark field microscopic view of the organism. It's a corkscrew-shaped organism. Most people don't have access to dark field microscopy anymore. Uh, Sue and uh, Jeannie referred to these epidemiologic data. I just put it up here for re-emphasis again. I think it speaks a thousand words. There was a precipitous decline in syphilis rates in New York City, and it sort of mirrors national trends after the introduction of penicillin 60, 70 years ago. You can see there's sort of a sawtooth pattern to the epidemiologic curve, and there's some suggestion that there may be sort of community or population-based immunologic phenomena that control to some degree uh, syphilis case rates, but we don't really know too much about that. There was a precipitous decline in the early 90s, reasons unclear uh, to this day, I think, why the case rates went down so dramatically. Uh, and it got to the point where the CDC felt that we had such good control over syphilis that we could expect elimination of syphilis. Well, you knew what was going to happen immediately after they said that, right? <laughs> the law of unintended consequences. The case rates started to go up. As you've been told, these case rates are primarily in men who have sex with men. That's a very unusual phenomena. Decades ago, that was not the case. Although there was disease in MSM, it was an equal opportunity infection, uh, both men and women. And what's also interesting, I think, about the current epidemic is that uh, years ago, most of the diagnoses were made in traditional STD clinics. And today, most of the diagnoses are being made in doctor's offices. And it's one of the reasons why we have to imp improve awareness about this amongst all clinical practitioners. <laughs> Um, this is a oft-reproduced uh, slide that shows you the stages of syphilis. Like other spirochetal diseases, leptospirosis, Lyme disease, this disease occurs in characteristic stages. But keep in mind, of course, the patients and the bugs don't read the textbooks, so they don't know what they're supposed to do. So this is only a guideline and not a hard and fast rule. And as I think has been alluded to already, 
Uh, primary lesions arise within weeks to sometimes months after exposure. Lesions resolve on their own without therapy, with uh, uh, localization of spirochetes and local lymph glands, and then dissemination and spirochetemia, and then you have the consequences of secondary syphilis. And I'll go through some of these things in a minute. Uh, the body immunologically controls infection, and patients enter into a latent phase of disease. Now, people who oftentimes get confused by the idea of early latent versus late latent. And early latent is a phenomenon that's characterized by a short period after the resolution of symptoms of secondary disease. Uh, it's supposed to be associated with a period during which you can still develop recrudescent secondary disease. And we believe that probably happens over a span of about three or four years. But for argument's sake, early latent disease is defined by about a year after the resolution of symptoms of secondary disease. Then patients enter into this long period of latency where all you have are serologic evidence of disease, and then the subsequent concern about the development in a proportion of those individuals who are not treated of tertiary disease. Here's some illustrations. Here's a primary chancre. These are indurated lesions. They're non-tender. They don't itch. There's oftentimes a joining or accompanying lymphadenopathy in the area. You may have one lesion. You may have two lesions. You may have three lesions. Um, they are not like herpes lesions, to say the very least. Once you bec uh, uh, become spirochetemic, you develop the typical rash, and you can see on this uh, uh, illustration, this person has the typical papulosquamous lesions on the palm, hyperpigmented lesions on the abdomen. Again, the bugs don't read the textbooks. This can look like anything, to be honest with you. Um, keep in mind that the moist lesion that I showed you, of primary syphilis, is how somebody transmits disease. People who oftentimes are freaked out about these sorts of manifestations, I'd have to say I think that uh, lesions on keratinized epithelium don't transmit disease, and that's an important point to keep in mind. Um, secondary syphilis can be characterized by a whole lot of other organ system involvement that I'm not going to go into, but you can develop hepatitis, gastritis, colitis, uh, uh, so on and so forth. So and this is one of the reasons why this disease is regarded as a great imposter or pretender. Here are lesions that are syphilis lesions, and again, they look like a lot of other things that you might not think are syphilis, but you have to keep an open mind about it, these sort of papular lesions. Here's another sort of papular lesion that looks somewhat atypical, and these lesions are moist and probably full of treponemes. This is a patient who has, again, sort of the uh, typical maculopapular rash on keratinized epithelium on the soles and the hands. Uh, here, somebody looks like they could have psoriasis or some other dermatologic condition. So again, you have to keep an open mind about it. And I think the point was made, we need to do a good job taking a sexual history because if somebody has recent sexual exposure, new partners, so on and so forth, and develops a rash, you shouldn't assume it's something else. You should at least consider the possibility that it's syphilis. Now, mucus patches are uh, lesions of secondary syphilis that occur uh, during the spirochetemic phase. They're not at the point of inoculation. And people will develop lesions in the nares and in the mouth that may be manifestations of secondary syphilis. And we've seen all sorts of tongue lesions that are manifestations of secondary syphilis. So again, an open mind is important. This is a patient we saw in our clinic. These are typical, somewhat, if you can call them typical, of condylomatolata. These are not primary, obviously they're not primary inoculation. There are way too many of these lesions. These lesions are a manifestation of secondary disease. They occur in moist intertriginous areas. They are highly infectious, teeming with spirochetes. 
Now, late-stage syphilis is a bit of a, a confusing issue. Again, I mentioned that after latency, tertiary disease develops in a minority of patients. We think in about probably 15% of people who don't receive treatment. It's one of the reasons why we're aggressive with treatment in latencies, because we don't want that 15% of people to go on and develop these various manifestations. Neurosyphilis is a little different than cardiovascular and gummitis disease. Neurosyphilis, truth be told, can occur at any time during the course of syphilis. So some of it could be tertiary disease, like general paresis and tabes dorsalis, but you can have early meningitis, you can have asymptomatic meningitis, and in fact, if you do spinal taps on people with early stage syphilis, a significant proportion of them will have CSF changes. We're not recommending everybody get a tap, but you will find that there is a lot of asymptomatic neurosyphilis. And most people seem to resolve that. That's a fascinating phenomena, considering the fact that a single injection of benzathine penicillin doesn't penetrate the central nervous system. Um, but you can have other things, ocular, otic, behavioral changes, cognitive changes, autonomic uh, abnormalities, sensory motor deficits. Again, the great pretender can look like a lot of things. Cardiovascular disease, much more specific. It is a tertiary manifestation involving the vasovasorum of the aorta. There are saccular aneurysms of the ascending aorta, possibly as the wall weakens and you can get aortic regurgitation. There can also be stenosis of coronary ostea, and this could cause coronary artery disease, believe it or not, that rarely happens. Late benign or gummitous disease is an indolent granulomatous-like lesion of the skin, bone, and soft tissue. Uh, it causes the destructive characteristic lesions that people learn about of, say, the cartilage and the uh, bridge of the nose, so on and so forth. But again, a sort of vanishingly uncommon uh, tertiary manifestation. We still see neurosyphilis for a wide range of reasons, especially because drugs don't penetrate the CNS all that well. I think we see much, much less cardiovascular disease and gummitous disease because we bathe the population in beta-lactam antibiotics through the course of their lives. So we probably nip in the bud a lot of syphilis that would otherwise percolate for decades and cause some of these nasty manifestations. I mentioned some of this stuff before. Again, neurosyphilis looks like many different things, and it should be certainly considered in anyone with serologic evidence of syphilis and neuropsychiatric and or ocular or otic disease. Now, ocular syphilis, let's see, here we go, um, is sort of a hot topic of late. Uh, eye involvement occurs most frequently in secondary syphilis and in late syphilis. Uh, it's been a classic manifestation of secondary syphilis. Just looking at my time here. Um, almost any part of the eye can be involved. Uh, the retina, uh, the anterior chamber, the posterior chamber, any of these things can be involved. Uh, the vast majority of eye problems associated with syphilis are also associated with many other infectious and non-infectious diseases. So I don't know about you, but I get a lot of referrals of patients who have other concomitant illnesses, whether it's diabetes or Sjogren's disease or other autoimmune diseases that might explain eye disease, but they happen to have serologic evidence of syphilis. And I'm uh, challenged to sometimes figure out if the eye disease is consistent with syphilis or their other underlying illnesses. Uh, but it does sort of keep us on our toes because of things like this. In 2015, there was a clinical advisory about ocular syphilis. Uh, in California, Washington, and other states, there were 24 cases reported of ocular syphilis with severe manifestations. The majority were HIV-infected MSM. There were a few HIV-uninfected men and women. There were significant sequelae with blindness, loss of vision, blurring vision, floaters, blue tinge in the vision. Um, 
And so we insist that careful neurologic exam is really important, I think, in most syphilis patients. Uh, patients with syphilis and ocular complaints need immediate ophthalmologic evaluation. So if you think somebody has ocular disease and they have serologic evidence of syphilis, you should try to get a hold of your ophthalmologic colleagues very quickly to have them take a look at the patient. Um, and if you're not really, sh unless you're really, really sure that this is not syphilis, the patients probably should have an LP. Uh, and uh, there may be concern and a, a reason to admit these patients and get them treated for neurosyphilis. Uh, there are, is prior surgery that suggests that there may be neuropathogenic strains that cause some of these ocular manifestations, but that is not ironclad. Uh, the CDC followed up some of these reports with a review of data from eight jurisdictions, and they identified a whole lot of cases of suspected ocular syphilis in a number of states, including New York, uh, in 2014 and 15, almost 400 cases. 93% of them were in men, the high proportion were MSM, but that's who's afflicted with a, a lot of the syphilis now. 51% were HIV co-infected. I think these numbers sort of parallel the current syphilis epidemic. 84% had symptoms, 54% had blurry vision, 28% had vision loss. Uh, there was uveitis, retinitis, optic neuritis. Um, most of them were, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, half and half had one invo eye involved and the other half had both eyes involved. Uh, of the patients who had CSF exams, 70% had CSF positive VDRL. So the CSF was positive in quite a high number of these individuals. Um, higher median RPRs were seen in HIV patients, not surprising. We've seen phenomena like that over the years. More often, the HIV patients had LPs. Again, not surprising given somebody's level of concern about those patients. More often treated with IV penicillin, um, uh, so on and so forth. I will say that having reviewed some of these cases and looked at some of the literature, uh, uh, one other unique aspect of these cases is that in almost every case that I've ever looked at, the, the non-treponemal serologic test was very high. I think the thing that challenges us is being confronted with patients who have low non-treponemal tests and ocular problems or non-reactive non-treponemal tests and ocular problems. I don't think the literature really supports that those people are at high risk, but we don't know. And the loss of vision is obviously a catastrophic problem, so you have to stay on your toes. Speaking of diagnostics, uh, traditionally we do this two, in a two-step fashion. We do a non-treponemal test first. That's your RPR, your VDRL, or various other permutations on that theme. We use, in those testing platforms, we use non-treponemal antigenic material to sop up or identify antibodies uh, to treponemes. These can be quantified, uh, uh, rises, uh, the, the test result rises with active disease or failed therapy and declines with successful therapy or latency. If you get a positive test, you never give somebody that as a unique test that shows that they have syphilis. They have to be confirmed with a treponemal-specific test. That's your T, uh, FTAs, your TPPAs, so on and so forth. Those do use treponemal antigens. Historically, they've been more complicated to do, more expensive, so they've been used for confirmation. These are not generally quantifiable, and the problem with them is that they cause lifelong reactivity. They don't go up and down like the non-treponemal tests do, as you probably know. Now, I do want to point out that none of these tests are perfect in any circumstance. And I like to say that clinical judgment trumps everything all the time. 
So if you're suspicious that somebody has syphilis and the tests don't support that diagnosis, keep looking at the patient, repeat the tests, because again, the tests are not perfect. In primary disease, and I won't go through all the details here, but you can see that the sensitivity in primary for many of these tests, uh, <laughs> for latent and for tertiary uh, disease, it's not perfect. You know, in primary disease, People will have non-reactive RPRs early on in the development of the primary lesion. If you think you've got a chancre there and the test is non-reactive, repeat the test sometime later or treat the patient if you're so convinced. Um, in late stage disease, again, you know, the RPR can become non-reactive in the absence of treatment. We don't know what that means. The patient may need treatment, you know. Um, Secondary disease, generally speaking, the RPR, the, the uh, VDRL, these things are usually quite sensitive. And here it says 100% sensitivity. The only circumstance I would say well, that, where that's not true, though, is in a biologic false positive. Sometimes patients have such a brisk inflammatory reaction, they have so much antibody that the flocculation process, for example, on an RPR card test is completely blocked and the test can't be run. So what you have to do there is ask your lab to dilute the specimen and rerun it. And you may find that the patient actually does have a reactive RPR. But again, clinical judgment trumps the test. So you have to be aware of that. Um, some of you may work at institutions where you uh, process a high volume of tests and you've noticed that your institution for a cost savings measure has adopted the reverse algorithm and that's because uh, some of the commercial uh, um, houses have developed EIAs that use treponemal antigens that they, they've been able to use in an automated platform and can be used and process lots of specimens and it's relatively cheap. And so what they're doing is they're using the treponemal-specific test as the screening test. It's like using the FTA or the TPPA as a screening test and confirming with an RPR or something like that. And it's backwards what most of us learn to do. And the problem with this testing algorithm is we're identifying lots of people who are positive by this treponemal-specific test and not positive by the non-treponemal test. You know, if both tests are positive, you know what to do. They have syphilis, you stage them, you treat them. If the Non, if the treponemal test is positive and the non-treponemal test is negative, we don't know what really what that means. Uh, do they have old disease? Did they get treated? Is that a false positive? We don't know. And I don't think there's good data to support any particular action, but uh, I think right now this is the algorithm that's been suggested that we follow. And if the individual is EIA reactive and the RPR is reactive, fine, you have syphilis, treat them as you would any other syphilis case. If the EIA is reactive and the RPR is non-reactive, on the other hand, do another confirmatory treponemal-specific test, like a TPPA. Have your lab do that reflexly. If both the EIA and the TPPA are positive, then I think there's a good chance that sometime in that patient's life they were exposed to syphilis. And if they were treated in the past, and you can document that, then they probably don't need additional treatment, depending on their sort of risk profile. On the other hand, if they've never received treatment, I think what most of us are doing is we're offering individuals like that treatment for latent syphilis with three shots of penicillin. Are we benefiting people? I'm not sure we really know that, but that's the nature of the beast right now. Your screening recommendations. Uh, Dr. Blank mentioned something about pregnant women. All pregnant women need to be tested at the first prenatal visit. You should retest pregnant women early in the third trimester and at delivery of high risk. People do get syphilis during pregnancy, so you've got to stay on your toes. 
MSM should be tested at least annually and every three to six months if high risk. I think the epidemiology speaks for itself. HIV patients, if they're sexually active at the first visit and annually and more frequently if high risk. Uh, again, getting back to pregnancy, just to reiterate this point, screen at the first prenatal assessment, at every encounter, consider risk and consider screening. Screen for uh, infants at delivery. Screen where stillborns after 20 weeks occur. That's important. And then as Sue mentioned, screen at 28 weeks. They're working on making that part of the law, yes? Okay, okay. Now this is just, uh, this is from a paper in the CID some time ago that demonstrates, I think, some of the ascertainment, uh, changes in the ascertainment dynamics when you start doing more aggressive screening. And this is, again, in Australia. We've been highlighting Australia. They seem to be doing lots of things correctly. Uh, but they imp <laughs> Why don't we just give the podium to that gentleman? <laughs> anyway. Some years back, they implemented a very aggressive syphilis screening program uh, for MSM. And um, here's HIV negative patients, HIV positive patients. You can see how steadily there's been a dramatic increase in screening of individuals for syphilis. And what's kind of interesting is that they've identified more and more syphilis, but, but what's happened is that rather than picking up a lot of people um, with early stage disease, symptomatic people with primary and secondary disease, what they've ended up discovering is a whole lot of people that have early latent disease because they have the documentation that they were negative sometime preceding that. So they can say with some certainty that this person has acquired disease in the recent past. Had they not implemented the program, what would have happened to these people? They would have gone on to late latent disease and they would have either been picked up in routine care elsewhere in their histories or not at all. And so this is really interesting data that shows how effective some of this stuff can be. Um, treatment. So uh, syphilis remains one of the only infections where you can still use penicillin reliably. Primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis, benzathine penicillin once for everybody, HIV, non-HIV, so on and so forth. Uh, for late latent and latent of unknown duration, three weekly injections of benzathine penicillin in order to uh, achieve uh, constant levels over a month period of time because with beta-lactam antibiotics, you're killing organisms when they're dividing. If they're in latency, the organisms are not dividing that rapidly, so you have to have depot drug on board for a long time. For late tertiary syphilis, except for neurosyphilis, you rule out neurosyphilis first, and then you treat the same as latent syphilis. One of the things that always comes up is what do I do if a patient missed one of their shots in the three sequence of injections? We're becoming much more rigorous about this, I think, and the current recommendations are that you can give them wiggle room of about two days off of uh, the standard course of three injections once a week for three weeks. For pregnant women, no wiggle room, okay? No wiggle room. You miss that injection by a couple of days, you gotta start from scratch. Alternatives to penicillin. Tetracyclines, and really specifically doxycycline, has been used for years. There's not a lot of great data to support its use, but it's been in practice for so long and it's been so successful that we continue to recommend it. So for early stage syphilis, two weeks of doxycycline therapy. For latent-stage syphilis, four weeks of doxycycline therapy. Ceftriaxone is a good drug for syphilis. It has excellent treponemal activity, uh, well-tolerated, so on and so forth. 
we are not to this day, I think, quite clear on what the dosing intervals or the total dose ought to be for ceftriaxone, but people have used it. Um, just a couple of points. Pregnant women should be treated with a penicillin regimen appropriate for their stage of infection. Simple statement. And in pregnancy, there are zero alternatives to penicillin. If a pregnant woman has an allergy or tells you have an allergy to penicillin, they have to be tested. And if they're truly allergic, they have to be desensitized. There are no alternatives. You should be aware of Jarosz-Herxheimer reactions, which can induce a miscarriage. It's an inflammatory reaction after the receipt of active agent against a high burden of spirochetes, not that surprising. And again, as I alluded to before, HIV patients should receive the same therapy as HIV uninfected patients. Who needs an LP? Again, another problem area that everybody sort of wrestles with. I come from an era when I remember learning that it was stated, and I still think it's a good advice, that if you think about doing an LP, then do an LP. Don't just rub your hands together and scratch your chin and think about it. <laughs> just do an LP. It's not that complicated, it's not that dangerous. Uh, we actually have an LP clinic in our institution to do just these things, mostly for patients ruling out neurosyphilis. Uh, the diagnosis of neurosyphilis requires a CSF evaluation, and the CDC again recommends that if you have somebody with serologic evidence of syphilis, neurologic or ophthalmologic signs and symptoms, evidence of active tertiary disease, if they failed treatment and the titers are going up, and then there was some data about 15 years ago to suggest that in HIV, if the RPR was high or the CD4 count was low, that all these individuals required an LP to rule out neurosyphilis. There's still some debate about those HIV uh, criteria. What, what constitutes neurosyphilis? If the VDRL is positive, that's neurosyphilis. If you have lymphocytic pleocytosis without a VDRL, that's neurosyphilis, unless you've got some other good explanation for it. CSF protein is not helpful. It can be elevated for a whole lot of other reasons. And some people have over the years played with using other serologic tests in the CSF, like the FTA-ABS. I don't think it's reliably available. I don't think we really know what to do with that test, so people aren't really using it. It seems obvious to us or, or intuitive that PCR might make sense, that you could test for treponemes in the CSF. It proves not to be helpful. And people continue to look at various cytokines if they might give a clue, but we don't really have those. We don't have good data on that, and we don't have them readily available to us. Neurosyphilis treatment, aqueous penicillin, 18 to 24 million units in divided doses for 10 to 14 days. And you should follow treatment with a conclusion of a full three-week course of penicillin with an extra shot of benzathine penicillin, just in case there are slowly dividing treponemes anywhere left. You know, two weeks is not enough, obviously, for latent disease. So that's the recommendation. As an alternative, you can give procaine pen every day with probenicid, but people, you have to have it set up so you can give it every day, and people have to have a commodious enough gluteus in order for you to keep shooting them with <laughs> procaine every day. Everybody's so health conscious, nobody, well, I shouldn't get into that. In New York. Oh, no, okay, all right. So that's the preferred therapy in Alabama? Okay. Yes, okay. Um, ceftriaxone has been proposed as treatment, and there was a study many years ago, but it was uh, underpowered, I think, that suggested ceftriaxone was a fine drug for this. Doxycycline actually has uh, uh, CNS penetration and is a good drug, and some people have over the years recommended that too, but there are no good guidelines for that. 
And as Dr. Johnson and I were, we were talking, we worked on a study some years ago looking at neurosyphilis, and we used amoxicillin and probenicid based on some sort of pharmacokinetic properties. And I suspect that that's a, probably a pretty good oral regimen, but we didn't have enough data to support its ongoing use. So uh, that's an interesting thought. What do you need to do? Do you need to do an LP in someone who only has eye symptoms and no other neurologic symptoms? This, again, I think is a quandary that I deal with. I don't know if you deal with. The current CDC recs treat ocular syphilis as if it's neurosyphilis, even if the CSF is negative. Um, you know, that creates a lot of problems. A lot of people have RPRs positive or FTAs or EIAs positive, and they have some ocular disease, you know? Uh, and this, the, the recommendations are really not specific enough to help us or help people in the clinic figure out who needs an LP and who needs to get treated for neurosyphilis. I think it's an ongoing problem. I would, I would suggest that if the titers are high and they look like they have active syphilis and it's clear that this eye disease does not uh, cannot be attributed to some other etiology, and we're not talking about cataracts or glaucoma because those would be highly unlikely to be suggestive of syphilis, that those patients should be tapped and treated for neurosyphilis in this current environment. Uh, some post-treatment follow-up for all stages and all patients. Obviously, you have to do partner notification or try to get their partners in for assessment and treatment. Uh, because one person does not alone have this infection and disease. All patients with syphilis should have HIV testing. Um, and as far as follow-up after treatment, again, this is an area of some contention. The rules suggest you should have twofold declines in serologic tests in the non-treponemal test if you're treating early syphilis over three to six months and for latent over 12 to 24 months, but I think we've all seen patients who violate these rules all the time. Some titers never go away and patients are serofast. Some titers don't decline properly at all and we give people repeated treatments of three shots of penicillin, three shots of penicillin. There's, I, I think, you know, you, you don't gain anything after two uh, rounds of injections. Um, so you just gotta keep your eye on it. I think if the titers go up, that's problematic. If the titers don't go down, continue to watch the patient over an extended period of time. If there are other clinical concerns about neurosyphilis, consider doing an LP, but I wouldn't rush to an LP. And LPs that show abnormalities that result in treatment for neurosyphilis should be followed up with a repeat LP three to six months down the line to demonstrate resolution of CSF abnormalities. And this is just some data that uh, appeared some years ago in the uh, CID, and it simply looks at an issue that I, I sort of touched on before. I think there's a lot of consternation about whether HIV-infected individuals need additional therapy uh, compared to non-HIV-infected individuals, and there's no data to support that at all. And this is just some data from an African study. How do you like that? I'm almost finished. Uh, I'm almost finished. So, but it, it demonstrates basically that there's no statistically significant difference if you give HIV-infected patients with syphilis multiple shots of penicillin versus standard shots of penicillin, like single injection, excuse me, for, uh, uh, for early stage disease. And the last thing, see my last slide, right? I'm sort of on time. So if, so, um, if you'll permit me a little cultural note here, uh, I, some of you may be familiar with this work Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. It was published in 1934. It uh, outlined some of his uh, uh, struggles as a writer in Depression-era Paris. It was um, uh, uh, particularly uh, noted for its uh, treatment of sexual topics. 
And it was actually not published in the United States for 30 years because of that issue. Anyway, uh, I think I read it when I was a teenager. I was titillated by it, of course, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it always stayed with me, this comment that it, it is underlined here. It says, in every metro station, there are grinning skulls that greet you with defendez-vous contra la syphilis. And wouldn't you know, I went to a poster sale one day, and there was the poster. <laughs> and I had to have it. I mean, who saved that? You know, it was pasted up in the walls of the Paris subway. So anyway, it's in my office, and that's maybe why people don't come to visit me so much. <laughs> I appreciate your attention. Thank you very much. Um, wow, that was a tour de force. I, I have to thank Dr. Augenbrunn because when we asked him to cover um, clinical diagnostic and therapeutic aspects of syphilis in 30 minutes, I thought he was going to have a stroke. And, uh, um, and he managed to do it brilliantly. So thank you. Um, we have a lot of questions. Um, please continue to give us your questions. Um, did you want to say something? Can I stand up for you this? Could stand up. You could stand up. You could stand up. You can also request friends to join you if you want from the audience. Uh, Sorry, if uh, I, other, I do see some people here. I'm I sorry. Know. Yeah, you do need a mic, but that's the only issue for. All right, there you go. How's that? Yeah, you're awesome. Okay, so lots of questions. Um, and maybe I will start out. And I, and I just want to emphasize that this is your opportunity to ask anything about syphilis because you will not see very many people who have seen as much syphilis as, as Dr. Augenbron, just as evidenced by uh, those. My those mother's slides. very proud of that. Yes. Fact. Yes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I'm, I am too. Um, so, so let me ask you, um, before I get to the audience questions, you mentioned a really key point when you were talking about the serofast patients. And, I, and if I had to um, say, um, quantify the number of emails I get asking questions about syphilis, the serofast, quote unquote, people who don't decline appropriately, especially in HIV care, is probably the most common one. You said you should worry when titers go up. Right. Can you define what you mean by that? So, it, you know, non-treponemal tests, there's enough variability in the lab and in the testing platform that a single dilution difference really doesn't account for anything, right? It's the same test. A 1 to 8 and a 1 to 4 is the same. A 1 to 16 and a 1 to 8 are the same. But if uh, uh, non-treponemal tests change by two dilutions, that's considered to be significant. And we think that going down two dilutions or more is a response to therapy, but if the titers rise, if they go from 1 to 4 to 1 to 16 or higher, then that's a suggestion of treatment failure or reinfection. And that's a big bugaboo, and I think, in assessing syphilis cases, too, is we can't distinguish treatment failure from reinfection. Great. So I, again, I would say if the titers rise by two-fold dilution, you have a problem. So and exactly. So someone, in fact, asked a patient with a titer of 1 to 128 treated nine months ago with a single injection appropriately uh, recently went from 1 to 16 to 1 to 32. Should I treat them or wait for a further increase based on your response? So I would say wait, Good. because okay. 1 to 16 and 1 to 32 are sort of the same, and yep. that's a, clearly a, a four-fold dilution or two-fold dilution drop from that height of 1 to 128. Yep. So I would not push the panic button. I agree. And, and I think one of the confusing aspects of this is that we say a four-fold decline or a two-fold dilution. It's really confusing. confusing. So a two-fold dilution means you're going up by two titers, okay? So it's going from 1 to 16, 1 to 32, 1 to 64. That's a four-fold dilution. 
solution. So it's really right. confusing. It's two steps. That's all you need to remember. So I think that's an excellent question. Um, let's see. What about syphilis and iris? Do we see immune reconstitution uh, syndrome in people who have syphilis? Have you seen that? I have to think about that. Um, I have not. I, I have not either. I, I have not. I don't it's come think, up. I don't think very I've recently. Seen it's yeah. come up. In fact, I'll tell you about a, an interesting patient really quickly that I just saw who had an amazing case of probably CNS gamma meningoencephalitis ocular syphilis in a woman, forty-two-year-old heterosexual woman, and very impressive aortitis. So wow. my question in her is, would you treat her as a two-week sort of person in the aortitis situation, or would you treat her longer? This came up from the neurologist. I'm sorry. It sounds like this patient clearly has central nervous system involvement, yes. Yes. right? Yes. I think this person buys the farm, you know? I think, they, I think they get two weeks of IV therapy followed up by a week afterwards with benzathine penicillin and it has to be followed like a hawk. You know, people okay. do fail therapy yeah. too, by the way, and you have to watch patients like that. Yeah, so. I will be seeing her in clinic. I will say anecdotally that the neurologist who was seeing her told me that the only way we could make a diagnosis of syphilis was with a brain biopsy. So I think there, there needs to be a little bit of education on the neurologic what was, side. What, what was the, the titer? Uh, one to one third. One to thirty-two. Yeah, yeah. I don't so know why you have to do brain really, biopsy. Yeah, no, I think yeah. it was. I think. I think. Actually, I think he needs. He needed a brain yeah. biopsy. I'm sorry. Um, can you comment on again getting to this issue of any special aspects regarding serologies in the setting of HIV infection? Someone wanted to know if false negatives were, were more likely for serology in patients with low CD4, or you were more likely to see "quote unquote" delayed seroconversion. Yeah, the latter seems pretty well. Uh, documented. I think that the, the, the literature for many years has demonstrated that uh, HIV-infected individuals have relatively higher titers respect, in, in respect to non-HIV-infected individuals for the same sort of stages of disease. And the, my sense is also the literature supports the idea that the titers don't decline as rapidly. Mm -hmm. And that may have something to do with this polyclonal gamopathy that HIV-infected individuals have that we've noted for many, many years. Um, it's certainly possible with an exhausted immune system that somebody doesn't make treponemal antibodies or non-treponemal serologic test results, uh, but I'm not familiar with literature about yeah. that. One of the things I think that it would be an, is an area that I wish somebody would study, I really think we need to look at serologic response in the era of U equals U because a lot of the data around the serologic reaction in people with HIV is from uh, the days when people did experience immunologic exhaustion as a rule, um, and we may have an opportunity to do that in a, in a study I'm going to mention in a second. Let me ask you about the practice that I think is very common in HIV care settings of instead of using a single injection of benzathine penicillin for early syphilis defined as primary, secondary, or early latent, people treat presumptively with three-weekly injections because they think more penicillin is better. Well, could you, that, that's a surgical attitude. Could you comment attitude. on that? Uh, it is a surgical attitude. Yeah. We don't have any surgeons here, I don't I, think. Yeah. I, my, did I just insult anybody? You no. Know. Yeah. So, I, you know, again, I think I showed some data about this, but I, I, I'm unaware of no data to suggest that HIV-infected individuals need to get additional therapy if you stage them for early-stage disease. A single injection of benzathine penicillin should be adequate. There's no study that demonstrates that more is necessary. 
True, and I will just mention, uh, you're going to hear from Dr. Jody Dion odom shortly. She's involved in leading a study uh, at UAB and uh, elsewhere that is actually randomizing HIV-infected people with early syphilis to a single versus three doses of benzathine penicillin to resolve this question once and for all. Really important to resolve it because we not only don't like to overuse antibiotics, but also because of a benzathine penicillin shortage. Have you been experiencing problems We did with at that? one time, but we haven't been wrestling with that recently. As a matter of fact, you know, anecdotally, I'll tell you that, you know, we had a benzathine penicillin short. It seems like it's been coming and going for years. Somebody had substituted some other version of long-acting uh, penicillin in our clinic, thinking it was adequate. And we ended up penicillin under-treating. Penicillin CR for yeah, strep throat, up, I believe. The and the package looked exactly yep. the same. Yep. And we ended up under-treating a whole lot of patients. And there was hell to pay when we realized what was going on, because we had to recontact all these patients that have been yep. treated over months and months and bring them back and get them treated. Uh, in fact, it prompted a change in the packaging. There was an out, uh, it was described in MMDR at, in Los Angeles, I believe, at a community um, LGBTQ center. I think it was just called LGBT at that time. Um, but they, and exactly the same thing happened. So it prompted a change in the labeling, which is great. But I mean, are people experiencing that now in their clinical practices that they can't get a hold of? if they want it? No. Yeah, I was going right? to ask. shouldn't be an issue Everybody now, okay right? with benzathine penicillin? Sue, did you want to say something? You wanna, we need you to use the mic if you want to. You could come up here and participate in the Q&A session, too. Uh, yeah, there, really? There, has, there is only one manufacturer of uh, bicillin in this country, and they did have shortages between, I think uh, it was like 2015 and 2017. Yes. Um, and so, like, we did have strategies citywide to really um, sort of marshal what penicillin we had to make sure that it went to the highest priority cases, namely pregnant women, so that, um, and then there were a bunch of people that got treated with doxy. And for those of you who follow our health alerts, we did actually cite the experience that Mike had around um, awesome. LA and CR Great. to just warn providers not to get the two confused. It's hard to believe because time just flies when you're talking about syphilis, but we have only two more minutes for the Q&As, so you're going to have to um, get with Dr. Augenbron over lunch. Several questions about um, ocular syphilis, and I keep coming in. By definition, isn't that neurosyphilis, and could you just reiterate your thoughts about the need to do LP, because I get that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't really, I'm sorry, I really don't know the answer to this question. Um, I think that there are clearly people who present with an active inflammatory process um, and uh, they need an LP right away. And again, we're sort of, we, we have a very low threshold to do an LP because we have the resources to do it in the outpatient clinic. I think for a lot of people, they really don't have the resource and have to send patients to the ED, which nobody likes to do. And again, if you're dealing with cataracts, a glaucoma, or something unclear, they have other conditions, the titers are low or non-reactive, non-treponemal test, it's hard to say that that person really needs an aggressive workup beyond what you would do otherwise for the serologic evidence. But you know, if in doubt, you probably should again do the LP. The problem there again is that the recommendations currently state that even if the LP results are negative, the patient should be treated for neurosyphilis. Right. 
And that means that, again, anyway. you'll do the LP, it'll be negative, you're sitting there wringing your hands, is this or is this not? The ophthalmologist can't really help you because they haven't seen ocular syphilis. And you're going to admit somebody to the hospital for 10 to 14 days, an IV therapy, risking endocarditis from bacteremia, so on and so forth. So it is a clinical conundrum, I think. All right. And one more question. I know we're done, but I want to use this question as a transition to the next speaker. It's a perfect question. Uh, here's a patient who is serofast at one to four for years, quote unquote, highly sexually active on PrEP. I want to ask what that means. Uh, routine testing reveals that his RPR is now one to eight. So again, a single jump in the titer. No symptoms. Any value in repeating the RPR in a week or two to see if it is higher rather than waiting through Three months. So this is one to four patients. It went from one to four past, to one to eight. One to four and one always to eight. Always serofast at one Between to four. Between the first treatment and now, the patient's just sexually active as far as we understand. Yes. And there's no additional therapy. That's right. You know, I would consider possibly retreating a patient like that because, you know, one to four, even if it hasn't shot up and the person's at risk, it could be that this individual is, is infected again. So they deserve at least one. Or could have been inf yeah. infected a year before or two years before. It's hard to know. <laughs> Three new shots of penicillin. So. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. And there will be opportunities in the cases, no surprise, to talk about this very issue. Mike, thank you so much. Thank I really, you. really appreciate it.